Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, mind control. What is fact and what is fiction when it comes to taking over the mind of another? Coming up, how hypnosis works and the parasites that hijack your brain. Plus, in the news, are we a step closer to reversible birth control for men? Why rocks can affect how you vote and why plastic is causing muscles to get weaker. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First today, for the most part, women have to bear the brunt of contraception by taking the pill or having a coil or implant fitted. Male contraception is either very temporary, for example condoms, or potentially irreversible, like a vasectomy. But now researchers in China have developed a reversible contraceptive technique for men. Now, So far, it's only been tested in rats, but it does appear to work and it does appear to be safe. The approach involves injecting into the vas deferens, which are the tubes that connect the testes to the inside of the body, a small amount of a thick gel-like substance that blocks the movement of sperm. To reverse it, you add heat and the gel dissolves, unblocking the vas deferens again. Bill College is a reproduction specialist at Cambridge University's physiology department. He wasn't involved in this study itself, but he was very interested in the research. This group are trying to develop a novel method for male contraception because at the moment there are very few opportunities for male contraception other than using a condom or having a vasectomy. This approach that they have developed is incredibly novel in that they believe that by a simple heat treatment they would be able to reverse it. Talk us through how it works. What's the technique? What the group have done, and they've tested this in rats, is they have put substances into the duct that the sperm have to move through, and these substances are in several layers. And one of the substances is a sort of thick compartment that will prevent the sperm from moving. The other substances, when activated by heat, can become liquid, and then they can dissolve the compartment that's blocking the sperm, so it's therefore reversible. So it's a bit like a tequila sunrise then, in the sense you've got these layers, you've got a thick layer that that provides the blockade, but then you've got higher layers that are capable of dissolving the blockade, but only when they get near it, but they're not near it to start with, unless you put some heat in there. Absolutely, it is just like a cocktail. In fact, the people in the paper say that they were inspired by looking at a cocktail with different layers. It's ironic that they're talking about cocktails in a paper about a sort of chemical vasectomy. Well, it is indeed, yes. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very, very novel and innovative approach. It needs to be developed. It needs to be progressed to see whether it would work in humans. They've only just tested it in rats, and they've monitored the fertility of the rats after this treatment for a period of 65 days or so. We don't know 
whether it can last longer than that. I mean, that's clearly going to be important in translating it into the clinic because you don't want to have to keep having this treatment. You want it to last for a fairly long time. In terms of actually how the heat reversibility bit works, how have they done that? The different layers have different chemical components and to reverse the blockage what they do is they heat the testes with just an infrared heat source and that liquefies one of the layers which then releases the chemical in a different layer which will then liquefy the blockage to allow the sperm to progress. Does this mean, though, that if I go and take a hot bath, I could accidentally dissolve this? I mean, how hot do you have to make the tissue? Because I can't see many people jumping at the chance to have their testicles irradiated with infrared sources in order to reverse this. It might not be comfortable. That's an absolutely perfect point, and it was one of the uh, issues that, when I read the paper, came to mind. They are heating the tissue up to about 42.5 degrees Celsius, which isn't that hot, and certainly... um, one can have a hotter bath than that. So I was concerned that it is possible that you have a hot bath and you inadvertently become fertile again. I think what they can possibly do is uh, modify the different components within this plug, perhaps to increase the temperature at which you could reactivate, and that might get over having hot baths. It's also possible that the way in which they formulated the plug means that if you, you shine a light onto the testes, it will specifically heat up the plug rather than the rest of the tissue. Is there any risk to the sperm from the chemicals involved in this? Could you introduce DNA changes into the sperm which might lead to birth defects, for example? A bonus of of this method is that one of the chemicals that are involved in dissolving the plug is also toxic to the sperm, and they make this point that you, if there are any sperm that do manage to get through, they're going to be incapacitated by this chemical. I don't think that it will introduce mutations because the sperm has already fully formed and the the genetic material in the sperm is probably well protected. I think what it will do is it'll render the sperm not functional and you may want to wait after you've reversed the procedure before you try to conceive. Interesting one, isn't it? Thank you very much to Bill College for looking at the paper for us. And uh, that paper was by Jiale Wang and his colleagues. They're at Nanchang University in China. It was published in the journal ACS Nano. And Bill has actually also written a commentary article giving a bit more detail about that research. You can find that at thenakedscientist.com. It's on there now. Now, from sperm to eggs. Many very important drugs, including anti-cancer and diabetes therapies, contain very large, complex proteins that are extremely difficult to make without using living cells. But this is expensive and can make the products harder to purify. But now scientists at the Roslin Institute at the University of Edinburgh have genetically modified chickens, so they package up the desired proteins in very large amounts in the albumen, or the whites, of their egg. I heard how it works from Lisa Heron at Roslin Technologies. The great thing about chickens, well, there's many great things about chickens, actually. So one thing is that chickens are very evolutionarily different from mammals. And what that means is you can make proteins for mammals that will have no effect in the chicken at all. Another is that the complex pattern of sugars that need to get attached to the protein for some proteins to be active, the chickens actually do it in a way that's very similar to humans. And then the final main reason is that large-scale chicken production for eggs 
and then the separating of egg white from egg yolk and cracking the eggs and everything is already very scalable. There's already large-scale production both in the food industry and in the pharma industry for production of vaccines and eggs. So we can put all these things together and have something that's really scalable very quickly. So you're getting chickens to basically lay eggs with specific proteins in. How have you done this? We used uh, lentivirus, which is a particular type of virus that can insert DNA into the genome of an organism. That virus was modified so that it can't replicate. All it can do is insert the gene. And we also had another bit of DNA called a promoter, and that tells the gene when and where to express the protein. And so we made one that very specifically and very efficiently tells the chicken, express this protein only in egg white in a very large quantity. How then do you get the protein out of the egg? We crack the egg, separate out the egg white from the rest of the egg components, and then we use a technique called chromatography, which is how everyone separates proteins from each other in a mixture. And what we found is that we can actually use basically the identical kinds of methods that people use for purifying proteins from cells. How much can you get out of a single egg? It depends on the particular chicken line that we're talking about, but in our best expressing line, we can get between 1.5 and 3 grams per litre of egg white. So, And for the particular protein that we're talking about, a single egg can give us a dose for an adult. Very easily scalable, so you could have it be a single chicken or you can have it be thousands of chickens relatively quickly. What is the effect, if any, on the chickens? The chickens can't tell. Um, as I say, we were very careful to choose proteins that don't have an effect on the chicken. And because the gene is there from the start, as far as the chicken is aware, it's just another egg white protein. So it sees it as a self-protein and doesn't have an immune response against it. And the modification is made only once. At that point, we just breed forward for the next generation. So our interferon chickens, for example, are on something like the seventh or eighth generation. What about the eggs? Could you eat the eggs? You can't eat the eggs because they're from a genetically modified organism. And the regulations say you can't do that. If you did accidentally eat an egg for some reason, it's unlikely to have any effect on you because the proteins won't survive your stomach. But the proteins are not intended for eating. Right. OK, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so what's next then? Now you've shown that this can be done in ways that you think can be scalable to industry. What's the next step? So now this project has moved out of the Roslyn Institute and into Roslyn Technologies, which is a company. And initially, we're going to be um, marketing these proteins as research reagents so that researchers, these proteins are used widely in research. And um, our hope is that researchers will, will buy these and use them. And A, that will help validate our claims. Um, and people can confirm that the proteins are what we say they are. In the meantime, we'll be developing, we have particular interest in animal health as we've come out of an animal health institute. And also, we're interested in speaking to people who would be interested in developing human or animal therapeutics. Are there any disadvantages to using the chickens? Yeah, there's always a risk, you know, even though we'd have very high spec facilities that have very high biosecurity controls, it is a living organism, so you could always get an infection. But that's something that happens with mammalian cell culture as well. You know, you can get infections into in the cell culture tanks. Obviously, you know, some people are not keen on using animals as a tool in, in general. And it does take a while to get the chickens made. It takes about a year to get to a point where you have hens laying eggs. 
chickens that really do lay golden eggs. That was Lisa Heron on her concept album, and she's from Roslyn Technologies. The effects of sibling aggression can be more significant than we once thought. 100 electrodes to link my nervous system with a computer and then onto the internet. The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and neglect might hurt your brain. So you've got the little brain slice in the recording chamber. From unravelling Alzheimer's disease to digging into dreams, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists around the world and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. You can listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. On the way, why does the ground beneath your feet affect how you vote? And are you safe from mind control? Now, most of us have seen Blue Planet 2 and the impact that plastics in our oceans has been having on the wildlife there. But it's not just the obvious large-scale things like plastic bags that are causing most of the problems. It's actually the microplastic particles that these form when they break down. These particles are invisible to the naked eye, but they are steadily working their way through all forms of life in the ocean, and they appear to be impacting the health and the activity of at least some of them. Well, with us is Danny Green. She's from Anglia Ruskin University, and she's just published a study showing that the plastic particles that we've been discussing affect the ability of some shellfish to attach themselves onto their surroundings. So which shellfish have you been looking at? So we looked at the blue mussel, Mytilus edulis. This is the mussel that you probably most commonly would eat. It's the mussel that you would see in, um, on the shelves of supermarkets. Myself and my collaborators from Maynooth University, we wanted to understand how these mussels have been affected in terms of their health, but also how they function as ecosystem engineers. So these are really important organisms. They form quite complex reefs and they support a lot of biodiversity of other animals. How did you discover that they're struggling to cling on? I set up an experiment using an outdoor laboratory system. So it's, it's kind of realistic without releasing microplastics into the environment, which would not be very popular with DEFRA. And we dosed them with microplastics and ran the experiment for quite a long time, 52 days. And after this time, I tested their tenacity, which is their ability to hold on to the substrate. And you measure the vertical force that is necessary to detach them. And I found that the control muscles that were not exposed to microplastics had double the strength than the ones exposed. They make a, a sticky material that enables them to, to cling on, don't they? So they form what's called bisel threads. So it's little tiny threads, and you would have seen these on mussels um, either on the shore or on your plate. And these actually attach onto the rock and allow them to stay in place. And the mussels that were exposed to microplastics, they had half the number that they actually produced. So they produced less threads, therefore the strength was reduced. And the dose of microplastics that you're exposing them to, was that sort of ocean realistic? In other words, if I were to go out into the field and take a sample of seawater where mussels would be eating and going about their business, I would probably see levels of plastic equivalent to your experiment or not? Um, I hope not at the current day. So the, the, the amounts that, that we used is um, representative of what we might find in the future in the next kind of 50 to 100 years, depending on which sort of um, projection you use. But actually, our concentrations were one of the lowest used in experiments to date. So it is quite realistic, but these effects aren't happening now. And there's still time to prevent this happening. 
which is good news, isn't it? But how do you think the plastics are achieving this effect? What are they doing to the muscles to mean that the bissel threads are reduced by up to 50% in the affected animals? So it's difficult to tell. It's either that they're making the animal feel full and it's not getting the same nutritional value from its food because it feels like it's full. We did a a technique called shotgun proteomics where you basically take a blood sample. In this case, it's called hemolymph, but it's the equivalent of blood in invertebrates. And we analysed all the proteins in the organism and found that a lot of immune response proteins were being expressed, stress response, detoxification proteins, all these things that are indicating that this animal is trying to get something out of its system. And this was the same whether you had uh, normal microplastics or biodegradable microplastics. So there's an effect from both of these types. Do you think this is unique to mussels or have you started to look at other shellfish that will also be exposed in the same way? They're filter feeders, they'll be drawing in water and therefore potentially bringing these things into their bodies in the same way that the mussels do. So it's difficult to tell if the exact effects that we had were unique, but from other studies that I've done, I've found that oysters have also been impacted. They've had alterations to their filtration rate, differences in their biomass, And other people have found that their reproductive output has also been reduced by microplastics. So there are definitely effects happening on other bivalves, not just mussels. It's interesting you're seeing this effect with just, if you want, naked microplastics. Because one of the other things people talk about in this context is that these plastics tend to soak up a toxic cargo of other oil-loving chemicals in the sea. So it could be a double whammy for these animals then, because not only are they getting a direct impact physically from the plastic, they could then get the toxic burden that goes with it. So they could be impacted twice. Yeah, exactly. So it could either be from the the plasticizers that are on the plastic itself. It could be from the persistent organic pollutants they absorb from the water that they're in. It could also be biological. It could be microorganisms attaching to the microplastics and then having an effect. And in order to separate these, we would have to do some pretty complex experiments, which I know that these sort of things are being done to try to work out what is it really that's causing this effect. And just finally, if this turns out to play out the way you think it is in your experiments, what would be the marine impact of this? If mussels can't attach to the rock, then they can't form complex reefs. They can live in really exposed environments where the waves are going to wash them away. So there's a greater chance of them being dislodged and therefore unable to form these really important habitats which support biodiversity. They're also economically important. And um, when we farm them as well, we they're often left out on these kind of um, pole and line sort of systems. So they could be dislodged, you could be losing yield. Um, There's economic and ecological consequences. Danny, thank you very much. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. That's Danny Green. She's from Anglia Ruskin University. The work she was describing has just come out in the journal Environmental Pollution. Now, the ability to speak is something we often take for granted, but not everyone can do this. So could technology give a voice back to the voiceless? Izzy Clark has this report. Speech is the most natural way for us to communicate. It's faster than emails, instant messaging and helps us to connect with those around us. Which is why losing our ability to talk because of an injury or a disease can be so devastating. For example, locked-in syndrome or ALS. An example of that would be uh, Stephen Hawking, that he was also losing the ability to talk. That's Nima Mescarani from the Zuckerman's Mind and Brain Institute at Columbia University. So in these cases, the brain is fine. The pattern of uh, activity that produces or hears a speech is okay. It's just the connection between that and speech generation muscles that is affected. What we are hoping to do is to directly read speech from the brain of a person so that they do not have to, to actually say it. But we can go one step before that, and as the brain activity is produced, we can directly detect and decode it. 
When we hear or imagine speech, our brain kicks into gear and that generates a specific pattern of neural activity in the brain as it processes this information. That all goes on in a certain area called the auditory cortex. That brain pattern depends on who's speaking, what we're hearing and the quality of the sound. What's impressive is that Nima and his team measured those brain signals and came up with a method that decodes them and turns it back into speech. We've used a machine learning algorithm. These are models that are uh, loosely based on the properties of neurons in the brain. And they are able to learn extremely complex patterns of relationships. We also use the latest technologies in speech synthesis. And we basically ask the algorithm to learn how to translate, how to go from the brain waves back to uh, the speech synthesis. And from there, we can go to, to the sound itself. I mean, that sounds too good to be true. So how do people come into this? How are you able to test that? We teamed up with neurosurgeons and whenever they had uh, patients, for example, with epilepsy, the surgeon implants a bunch of electrodes in their brain. And these patients are in the hospital, they're connected to a recording device, and we play them sounds and we record their brainwave uh, simultaneously. The first part of this experiment involved playing children's storybooks to patients. This helps the algorithm to recognise their all-important brain patterns when hearing speech. But then it was time to see if the algorithm could inverse this, turning those brain patterns into something audible. We asked them to listen to numbers from 0 to 9, and the algorithm was never trained on numbers. But looking at half hour of speech, it was able to to figure out what sort of uh, brainwave activity corresponds to what sort of speech sounds. And then uh, this algorithm is able to reconstruct a sound that is uh, most similar to what the person actually heard. And of course, because we know what the person actually heard, we are able to compare the two to determine whether it did a good job or not. And when we did that test, we found that what we reconstructed from the brain is highly intelligible. How intelligible? Well, using the latest speech synthesizers, the algorithm translated their thoughts into this. And those speech synthesizers, similar to Siri, Google Assist or any other minion living in your device, helped make this a vast improvement from any previous attempts. See what I mean? But Nima seemed very positive that one day this system could translate brain signals into more complex sentences. So, could this technology give a voice to those with ALS, locked-in syndrome, or those with any other speech impairment? So I would say that this is definitely a, a big step in that direction. But obviously there is a lot more that has to be done. Previous studies have shown that there is a lot of similarity between actually listening to speech or imagining listening to speech. But of course, it has to be tested. And that's also another future direction of our work. The ideal goal would be to have an implantable device that is able to detect and decode the brain activity that reflects the internal voice of a person. So when the person tries to say something internally, we would be able to to decode and translate it into speech so that uh, the person will have the ability to communicate using a speech. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? That was Nima Mescarani. He's from Columbia University and the study on that work is in Scientific Reports. 
Finally this week, the Earth is, to put it lightly, a pretty important factor in humanity's origin. For a start, we live here. But the extent to which features of the planet, like rivers, rock type and plate boundaries, have shaped our evolution and human history runs very deeply. It affects everything from our development of intelligence right up to who you might vote for at the next election. Don't believe us? Well, Lewis Dartnell from the University of Westminster has just literally written the book on the topic. It's called Origins, How the Earth Made Us, and Georgia caught up with him to find out how we've been shaped by our own planet. Humans are an animal species just like any other organism. We have been adapting to our environment. We've been influenced by our ecosystem, by the environment we've been growing up in. So in some sense, it's not surprising that as a species, we've been crafted by our natural world. And the reason that we evolved such high intelligence in East Africa is because the environment was exceedingly unstable and very quickly fluctuating because of a combination between the plate tectonics and that interacting with climate cycles to do with kind of Earth's wobbling orbit. So it was our environment that created us to be very intelligent. Why would a changing climate help us become super smart? Because if you have a relatively static environment, so say it's an environment that's always pretty dry, an animal can evolve a very good survival strategy to that, like a camel, and it would store a lot of water in its body and recycle all of that water and have kind of humps to minimise its body fat. But if you've got an environment that is always changing, fluctuating back and forth, there's no, no one body solution to that. And the best solution that evolution can come up with in that case is a behavioural solution. It makes complex, adaptable behaviour. It gave us intelligence. Right, so if we'd had it good and easy and everything stayed the same, we'd have become simple camel-type things. We probably wouldn't be having a conversation on the technology (laughs) of radio. In fact, we probably wouldn't have language or tool use had it not been for this wildly fluctuating environment in East Africa. How about more recently? Um, I say recently, but like when humans started to start making civilizations. So we look at the first civilization, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with Mesopotamia, this very fertile region between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And that's where the first large cities popped up. That's where the very beginnings of, of civilization began. And again, there's something really quirky about the plate tectonics in that region where humanity first built civilizations. And what's happening is the Arabian Peninsula is swinging away from Africa like this great big barn door of continental drift. And it's slammed into the southern margin of Eurasia, of the other continental plate, and crumpled up a range of mountains called the Zagros Mountains. And when you've got a great big heavy mountain range, it pushes down the crust the Earth's crust alongside it, and you get what's known as a foreland basin. And we often find rivers like the Tigris and Euphrates flowing through that foreland basin, and they fill up with a very fine, very fertile river-deposited soil. And so in a sense, humans settled and built their first civilizations in the place where it was easiest to get settled with agriculture and, and build these big populations, these first cities. And it was plate tectonics again, that created that environment for us to to settle into. And what about us today, just like day-to-day lives? Is there anything that we've been influenced by that we might not know? Another great example that really jumped out at me when I was writing Origins was, it's not just ancient history. We still bear this deep imprint of the earth and the kind of geology underlying our feet in something as kind of current and free-flowing as politics. 
And there's a couple of examples in Origins. There is a very, very clear correlation between Labour voting constituencies and rocks dating back to the Carboniferous era. So uh, looking as far back in Earth's history as 300 million years now. And again, that deep link um, is absolutely profound. It jumps out at you when you just look at the two maps that I put into Origins. And the explanation is, is actually quite simple because Carboniferous age rocks are where the coal deposits are. And coal is what powered us through the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And it's been, and it still is, an incredibly uh, important energy source in the modern world. And the reason that the Labour constituents map over with the coal deposits is that the Labour political party rose out of trade unions. So the, the link there is relatively simple, but I still think it's absolutely profound when you think about it that something like the political map of where people just happen to vote for different political parties correlates so strongly with the age of geological rocks that happen to lie beneath your feet. Lewis Dartnell there. Is it fascinating, isn't it? And apparently there's a very similar thing going on in America with uh, Democrats and Republicans too. Um, and if you want to find out, you can uh, check out his book Origins, How the Earth Made Us. And in fact, if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories this week, both the transcripts as well as references to the papers underpinning those stories are all on our website, thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. And now it's time for our main theme this week, which is mind control. Can the way that your brain works be altered by external forces? Well, coming up, we'll find out about the parasites that can turn their victims into living zombies. Also, how the world around us is influencing our behaviour all the time, whether you realise it or not, and how scientists might one day be able to control you using just the contents of a bond and some light. But first, when you think of mind control, there's usually one thing that immediately comes to mind – hypnosis. This is the spooky phenomenon where people can appear to be under someone else's control. But is it real? Ever curious, the naked scientist decided to give it a go. I would imagine now these magnets are going to get stronger and stronger. And what's going to happen is it's going to start pulling your hands in closer and closer together. Deep breath in for me. These are a real big stack of heavy books. Imagine your right hand now is going to get heavier and heavier and heavier. If you try and pull your fingertips apart, it's going to feel almost impossible to do so. The more you think about it and the stronger these magnets feel, if you try and pull your fingers apart, it's going to feel really, really hard to do so. One, two, three. Noise. Despite being a bunch of sceptics, there were definitely a few fingers stuck together and a hand or two floating up in the air. All thanks to the dark arts of Jack Blackburn, professional hypnotist and mind reader, who started getting into it about seven years ago. There is hypnotist school. It's like Hogwarts, but for hypnotists. Uh, you can go on a big crash kind of course over a few days and two days later you come out of it and you're a hypnotist and easy as that, really. What was it like for you the first time you actually hypnotised someone? Scary, as you can imagine. The fear of failing in front of everyone. But, um, but the first time it, it worked and you just had this overwhelming sense of, wow, I've got like a superpower now. <laughs> yeah, and then did you use your, were you tempted to use your powers for evil? I still do. <laughs> Not tempted, I still do, yeah. 
there are there are some crazy kind of ideas. Went into a bar and got someone who I've never met to give me all his money in his wallet for no reason at all other than it'll make him feel great. Did you give his money back? Of course I did, yeah. <laughs> What's your favourite thing you've ever got someone to do? It depends on the situation. There's, there's situations where we get like um, a stag party or a hen do and everyone's up for something. Everyone's up for a laugh and everyone's up for a bit of bit of Mickey taking and you can get them to do whatever you want. You can get them to pretend like they're a baby again and they'll just crawl out on the floor and they'll make lots of noises and not talk like a human being. <laughs> That's kind of fun in front of lots of burly men who are drunk to see their their kind of their best man, for example, getting rolling around the floor crying. Yeah, that that's always a good one. Jack Blackbourne. So maybe don't invite him to your stag do if uh, if you're not up for being humiliated. Or maybe you'd like that. I don't know. But hypnosis isn't just of interest to stage magicians like him. Scientists are also extremely interested in it too. And with us is Devin Tahune. He's from Goldsmiths University where he researches the phenomenon. Um, so Devin, first of all, what, uh, what sort of hypnosis are we talking about here? What does the word actually mean? Hypnosis means a lot of different things depending on the usage and depending on the person using it. Typically in an experimental or a clinical context, it refers to a set of techniques in which we harness the phenomenon of suggestion. So we use suggestions to alter behavior and experience. So suggestions are just simple verbal communications whereby we're telling you something that you're going to experience something as though it's occurring outside of your control. So I might tell you, for example, you are no longer able to experience anything in your arm. And in very highly suggestible individuals, this can often produce an experience where they cannot feel any pain, for example, in their arm. Hypnosis is just a technique for using those suggestions. And what do you mean by highly suggestible? What does that actually translate into? How would I recognize someone who is? They're not necessarily easy to recognize on the street, so they don't have any kind of distinct kind of characteristics that are easily identifiable. Nevertheless, they amount to about 10 to 15 percent of the population. So these are people that are able to experience pronounced changes in their thoughts, their emotions, their perception in response to suggestions. Kind of one of the most notable features of them is they tend to get very highly absorbed in activities. So people that tend to kind of get really emotionally involved in films or music and activities along those lines tend to more often than not be more highly suggestible. And do we understand why uh, when you make these suggestions to them, they are more susceptible to engaging with that message? Is there something about their brain that makes them susceptible? Sure. So our understanding of the um, of the brain mechanisms underlying hypnosis are relatively poor. We do know that suggestibility is fairly stable, and so this would seem to suggest that are, there are these kind of neurophysiological characteristics. One kind of idea that's there's behavioral evidence as well as some neuroimaging evidence is that highly suggestible individuals seem to have less awareness of their intentions. So normally when I try to suppress pain in my arm, I'm aware that I'm intending to do so. So one kind of prominent theory of hypnosis is that we would suppress pain in the arm, but a highly suggestible person is not aware that they're doing so, and that's why it feels like it's outside of their control. So this seems to kind of implicate brain regions or brain networks involved in the extent to which we're aware of our own mental states. To what extent have people actually done hypnosis in brain scanners to see how it changes brain activity? There's been a tremendous amount of research uh, using functional neuroimaging techniques to study various features of hypnosis has been going on since um, the mid to late 90s. These studies have largely aimed to kind of validate hypnotic responses and less to study the mechanisms. So basically, in other words, these techniques have largely kind of shown 
beyond fairly reasonable doubt that when people are experiencing a reduction in pain in response to hypnosis, you're actually seeing corresponding changes in brain regions supporting pain processing. So basically, these kind of do these studies overwhelmingly indicate that hypnosis is real in the sense that's producing genuine changes in the brain. And if it's producing genuine traces and changes in the brain, what's the application and in what way can that be be used for good, not just to obviously make people laugh on stage? Can we use it clinically? Yeah, so the primary um, clinical application of hypnosis in therapeutic context, perhaps the most prominent one is in the treatment and management of pain. So since the 19th century, hypnosis has been reliably used to uh, treat and manage pain. It's important to emphasize it's certainly not a panacea. It doesn't work with everyone, and it's not going to work with all conditions and symptoms. It's especially good with pain. The evidence for other conditions, such as anxiety and depression, is not really as good. That might be because there's not a lot of research on that, so it's really hard to say. But particularly in the context of pain, it seems to be especially valuable. And to finish, do you think uh, it's just humans that are susceptible to hypnosis? Could I, for instance, hypnotize my dog? Um, I would say you cannot, no. So I would view um, hypnosis as largely a kind of a verbal application of suggestion. Certainly you could potentially manipulate your dog in various ways and potentially manipulate their behavior using various types of tricks, but um, I would be very cautious about kind of linking that with something like hypnosis. I was thinking about the sort of lamb chop dangled in front of the nose. Devin, thank you ever so much. That's Devin Tahoon. He's from Goldsmiths, University of London. Now, you may think you're immune to being hypnotised, fully in control of your decisions. But are you or have you been manipulated your entire life without ever realising it? Philip Bougeot studies decision making here at Cambridge University. Yeah, so actually I thought I'd give you an example of how easy you are to manipulate. Uh, so I'll ask you a quick question, which is a very famous question. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who won the Nobel Prize in like 2003 in economics, did this test. And so I'll ask you two sets of questions. Um, let's say we have 600 people that are infected with a specific disease. And I give you the choice of two programs that you can apply to try and save a few people. So if program A, you know for a fact that about 200 people will be saved. Program B, about with one-third probability, everyone will survive, everyone will be saved, but then two-thirds probability, no one will be saved. Hmm. Which one would you pick, program A or program B? Uh, a, I think, Yeah. Yes. So that's what most people would pick. So you pick the safe option. So you try to save 200 people for sure. If I ask the question a bit differently and instead basically give you two programs that are about dying instead of saving. So we say program C, 400 people will die for sure. Or program D, there's a one third probability that no one will die or two third probability that everyone will die. That, mm, that's trickier. It's sound, D sounds better in that one, but they're yes. the same. Yeah, so you follow basically the average. So most people, if you present an option as a gain, would go with the riskless option. So you go for the certain, the sure option. So saving 200 people. But here, 400 people will die for sure. It's considered a loss. And people tend to be a lot more risk-seeking when it comes to losses. So you prefer testing chance. And so... You can imagine this kind of question when you ask this a million times to different people. People have different patterns, but everyone seems to follow this type of behavior. Does this mean governments can use this to try and change our behavior? Yeah, so these kinds of tests have actually started a whole new subfield of science called behavioral sciences. 
within this, we have behavioral insights, which are different choice biases that we can use to try and modify people's behavior. And most of this is actually for good. So I don't want to scare everyone. It's also been happening most of your lives. We're just aware of it now. But sometimes it's not as good. And so with the advent of data science, there's a lot of different things you can do. And a lot of corporations, shops, companies are using that to maximize profit. But then on the other hand, you have governments that are really trying to use that to try and make society better if you want, according to the government, that is. <laughs> okay, um, hit, me, hit me with some examples then. Some examples? Well, actually, I was talking to a group in Canada, uh, my home country. So the Behavioral Insights Group in British Columbia were asking a question recently, which was, how do you reduce the rate of human-caused wildfires, for example? You've probably heard about California last year, very difficult. So that's a really good question. And you don't want to force people to stop making fires. You just want to try and nudge them, which we call to try and reduce this risk. So they were asking a bunch of different questions, and it seems like low-cost messaging, which is just reminding people, texting people about it, seems to influence their decision. And so what you want to do is still leave the decision there for people, so they still have the same choices. But the way you ask the choice is basically biasing the choice one way or another. So that's a great example. Another one that we probably all experience is on Netflix. Uh, when you're watching TV on any streaming device, really, when they start playing the next episode automatically, this is a huge framing effect because if you had to choose, that's a little gain. So you're choosing to watch the next episode, you're winning. But if you have to stop the next episode automatically, that's a loss. So it's a lot harder for people and just keep watching. You binge watch. And that's a very good example of what's happening. And what about sort of out and about in the streets? Are there things there that we might come across on a daily basis? Yeah, so actually in London, there's a very good example. And that would be the buttons you have to press to cross the intersection. A lot of these, actually in a lot of major cities, don't do anything. They give, you the, yeah, they give you the impression of control, which gives people the idea that, oh, they've pressed, so they will wait. But most of the time, they don't actually do anything. Now, in most villages or smaller towns, they actually have some matter of importance, but you can try next time you're in London in New York, a lot of these things don't do anything. We've been tricked. So what does that mean? We, it makes us less likely to just run across the road because exactly. we think we've done something. So it reduces jaywalking. And there's another great example that would target men specifically. If you've been to a urinal recently where you saw a bee or a fly in the urinal, that's people taking advantage of your psyche really to make you aim there so that you don't have spillover. <laughs> Making it fun, I guess, exactly. as well. Um, is there a way to, you know, shield yourself from this kind of stuff? Uh, so unfortunately, like a lot of behavioral effects, you can't really shield yourself. So this takes advantage of how our brain is wired. Um, so we're very, very efficient at being flexible. That's a key trait of humans. But all this flexibility comes at a price, and it's that we take a lot of shortcuts in our decision making. And a lot of what we do is going to be subjective, so relative. So I was talking about games and losses earlier. A lot of this will be based off what you're seeing in your direct environment. So what's considered a win right now? now might be a loss tomorrow. And so that's a key symptom, if you want, of our flexibility, of our humanness. But unfortunately, it also makes us very risk prone for these kinds of behaviors. Oh, dear. So we're very basic, very easy to manipulate. <laughs> Thank you very much, Philippe Bougeot from Cambridge University. Cheers for joining us. Thank you. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Georgia Mills. This week, we're looking at controlling the mind and in a moment, how scientists are using light to activate brain circuits. First, though, to the masters of mind control, and that is parasites. And with us to explain why and how is Cambridge University behavioural ecologist Jenny York. Hello, Jenny. Hi. Now, 
So first of all, tell us then, why should a parasite ever need to manipulate someone's mind or an animal's mind? Why? So parasites make their living on the inside or on um, other organisms, so their host species, and they're at complete conflict with these other these other organisms over what, what they want. Because they're stealing from them. They're stealing from them, yes. So in order to sort of transmit to the next stage of their life cycle or to reproduce, in some cases they have these adaptations that allow them to manipulate the behaviour of their host. Can you give me some examples? I can start with probably my favourite example, <laughs> somewhat biased, of the common cuckoo, which we study up at Wiccan Fen in Cambridge here. Can you do an impression of one? <laughs> I, I wish I could. You knew I was going to do that. No, cuckoo. <laughs> yeah. But you, you hear this sound so so infrequently these days because they're on the way, aren't they? They're, they're they are, not, not yeah. so common as they yeah. once were. So what do cuckoos do then? We, we all know they lay eggs in the wrong bird's nest, but what do they do to make that better? So, as you say, they lay their eggs in the wrong nest. They're a, they're a brood parasite. That means they need to put their egg in, in, in the nest of a host species in order to um, reproduce and produce offspring. And they have a whole variety of tricks in order to make this happen and to improve their chances because it's not at all in the, in the host bird's interest to raise these cuckoo chicks. And one really interesting um, adaptation they have, the manipulation of behaviour, the female cuckoo, despite being very secretive and cryptic and hiding and waiting for hosts to leave the nest so she has an opportunity to lay and taking as little as 10 seconds to lay her egg in their nest, she then, after doing so gives this really conspicuous call that if it were anything else, you'd think, why is she giving the game away? She's alerting the host to what she's just done. So we were really interested in this call and we looked at the acoustic structure of it and it's very similar to that of a sparrowhawk, which is a predator, a predator of, of the of reed warbler that exactly. parasitising. Exactly. So is it that she's doing that in order to make them stay away for longer? And so they're, they're distracted, worrying about the predator. They're not worried about what she might have done in their nest. Yeah, that seems to be what's happening. So this call makes them equally vigilant to hearing a sparrowhawk call. So it does get them off kilter. There's something about this call that makes them feel wary about their own safety. And so instead of paying attention to what's in the nest and thinking, is there something parasitising me? They're paying attention to looking after their own well-being. How do you think the cuckoos evolved to do that in the first place? Because that's pretty complicated. To mimic another bird, having evolved to, to lay your egg in the wrong nest in the first place, to then evolved to mimic another bird, you've got to know that the other bird you're mimicking is a threat to the first bird you're trying to parasitise. So there's lots of links in that chain. Yeah, so it's it's probably unlikely that they're doing this um, consciously and using um, vocal mimicry that some species do. Some species can hear a call and then imitate that call perfectly. It's more likely with cuckoos, because they're not vocal learners, that they just inherit this. It's instinctive, this call that they have. And over evolutionary time, it's become more and more similar to that of a sparrowhawk. Amazing. What about, since we're talking this week about manipulating the brain rather than just external manipulation, what about things that manipulate from within, parasites that can actually change the way your brain physically works? So there are some lovely examples of this. I don't know if lovely is the right word, to be honest. Um, I think that if you think of the sci-fi movies, you know, Alien, we have the real world alien in the zombie fungus that infects ants. They'll come across a spore of this fungus on the forest floor and then it will take several days to develop inside them and at a certain point it switches and causes 
their behaviour to change so they move away from the colony and up high into the tree where they then bite onto a leaf and stay still until this fungus erupts 24 hours later, erupts from their head and throws spores into the forest to carry on. So they they make the ant into their sort of fruiting body. Exactly, yeah, yeah, amazing. So they're they're just manipulating the behaviour directly inside. Do we know how the fungus is doing that to the animal's brain? This is something that's getting more and more interest at the moment, this exact mechanism of how parasites are manipulating their hosts. So it's a lot clearer in another example, the kamikaze horsehair worm. So there's a a worm that lives inside the body of a cricket and it needs to get into water in order to get to the next stage of its life cycle. So it must burst out of the cricket's body. But the cricket doesn't want to go anywhere near water. That's not part of its everyday life. So by changing the neurochemistry of this cricket, it makes it a kamikaze cricket that goes towards the nearest body of water and then is burst open with a giant worm. <laughs> Hurls itself in, aren't they? You said, that, you said they were horrible examples. Jenny, thank you very much. We'll leave it on that wonderful thought. Jenny York from the University of Cambridge. Gory stuff, especially if you happen to be an ant or a cricket. But there is actually another way scientists can effectively take the reins of the mind without using parasites. It's a technique called optogenetics. It involves adding light-sensing genes to particular brain cells so that you can switch them on and off. And if you know which brain cells to target, you can elicit a behaviour, essentially remote-controlling an animal. K-Maxine Tai studies this at MIT and uses it to find out how the brain works. And she explained to me how you make nerve cells light-sensitive in the first place. The first optogenetic tool that became really popular was channel rhodopsin. And channel rhodopsin is an algal protein. So it's found in algae, you know, pond scum. And somehow this single-celled organism, quote-unquote, knows that it needs to swim towards light, where actually how it does this is that there's a light-sensitive channel. And when that light hits that channel, it opens. That, in the case of an algae, uh, makes a little flagella flap so that the algae moves forward. In neurons, would make the neuron fire an action potential, which is the means by which neurons can communicate with each other. Right. So by putting this protein, making sure it's expressed in certain parts of the brain, when light is present, you can basically switch them on. Exactly. How do you get the protein to express only in the neurons you're interested in? A common way is to use a viral vector. There are all different types of viruses and you can express any gene of interest in a virus. The virus infects the cell and then the cell starts producing whatever that gene codes for. So in the case of channel rhodopsin, I can package it into a virus and then use the virus to infect certain cells. You know, based on the cell type, we can control the expression of channel rhodopsin. So what kinds of things are people using optogenetics for? It's a really powerful tool because it allows us to go in and, you know, the brain is just this big gray ball of mush. And how do we know how it works? We can piece by piece test what happens to the rest of the brain as well as to the animal's behavior when we manipulate the activity of select populations of neurons. Um, We can define those populations of neurons by what they produce, what type of neuron they are, what their connections are, and that helps us sort of dissect the circuitry of the brain. Could you give me a couple of examples of of what you've actually made animals do? Yes. So um, in our group, uh, we published a paper in 2015 and found that if you activate 
GABA or GIC, these are inhibitory neurons that project from the lateral hypothalamus to the ventral tegmental area, which is where most dopamine neurons are found. If you um, activate these GABA or GIC neurons, what you get is, you know, you place the animal in an empty chamber and you start stimulating these neurons and the animal will begin licking the floor and then it will shift its weight and engage as if it's picking up food from the ground and eating it, except that there's no food. It's an empty cage. So their paws are empty, yet they're, you know, sitting back, holding it up to their face and engaging in what looks like feeding behavior. Another result that we've seen is you stimulate certain populations of neurons, for example, in the brainstem, and you'll get all sorts of really robust escape-related behavior, animals leaping out of their cage, jumping off of apparatus one of my students once called this the popcorn mouse. We got popcorn mice because the mice are just leaping all over. And that suggests that we're tapping into an escape-related circuit. It sounds like this is quite a young field, but there's amazing things being done already. How far do you think this could go? Could we get to the stage where we have like remote-controlled mice? I don't think remote-controlled mice is very far off at all. I mean, wireless stimulation devices exist. I mean, the hardest part would be like the battery life of the wireless control. I mean, that we basically have now. Um, I think that's, if that doesn't exist now, it's, you know, a few months away from making possible. Wow. So you're telling me you could get a mouse and sort of say forward, left, right, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we can control motor cortex. We can make r- mice run in a circle. If we had two different lights on the different sides, you could make the m- mice run left or right or forward or freeze. I think running backwards is a little bit trickier. I mean, to me, a remote control mouse feels very much within reach. Do you think it could ever be done in humans? I think the biggest concern that I would have about using it in the brain for humans, although I believe optogenetics is already being used for retinal prosthetics for people who are blind and to help them see and for bladder control things around the periphery, um, cases in which function is already completely lost. And so there's relatively little to risk. But I think in terms of using it in the brain, we still are just beginning to understand brain function. And so I think that is still quite dangerous because the viral tools that we have for expressing these transgenes, which would be the only way to get into a human, would be potentially feasible if and only if they could become stable and safe. And I think that is a big if. Currently, all the viral vector tools that I'm aware of and familiar with and have used have some level of toxicity. All right. So we don't have to worry about being remote controlled humans just this minute. No, I think there's all sorts of ethical concerns that I hope will prevent irresponsible exploration. No irresponsible exploration scientists. I hope you're listening. Um, But even without that, it sounds like uh, we are very susceptible to mind control every single day. Thank you very much, Kay Tai, and to all of our other guests this week, Philip Bougeot, Devin Terhune, Jack Blackbourne and Jenny York. And to finish this week, it's time for Question of the Week. And Jenny Gracie has been sniffing out the answer to this for Richard. Why does a candle start to make more smoke and smell when it's blown out? To shed some light on this question, I spoke with Duncan Graham, a professor of chemistry at the University of Strathclyde, to first of all find out how a candle actually works. A candle looks simple enough. A block of wax with a wick, often a piece of string running through its centre, but you need three things to start a fire. Fuel, oxygen and a heat source. I also caught up with Ricky Carville, who teaches combustion and fire dynamics at the University of Edinburgh. He had this to add to how the flame keeps alight. When a candle is burning, the energy from the flames heats up the wax. 
And while the wick does burn, it's actually the wax that fuels the flame and keeps it burning. The melted wax flows towards the wick and is drawn up into the flame. Inside the flame, it's about 800 to 1000 degrees C, and the high heat breaks up the big wax molecules into smaller chunks. This process is called pyrolysis. Most of these chunks burn inside the flame and are turned into carbon dioxide and water vapour, which are both invisible and have no smell. This process can also be called combustion. Duncan went on to explain it further. If the combustion of the wax is 100% complete, then only light, heat, water vapour and carbon dioxide will be produced. However, we've all seen the sooty marks that can be left on the edge of a candle holder, on a larger scale, the black marks seen at the back of a fireplace heading up the chimney. This is due to incomplete combustion of the wax producing small carbon particles, which we call soot. So that explains why we see smoke, but what about the smell? The smell you get from a burning candle is due to the tiny proportion of pyrolysis products that didn't burn properly in the flame. When a candle is blown out, the flame stops immediately, but the wick and the wax are both still hot, so pyrolysis continues for a few seconds. The solid particles and smelly gases are produced for a moment, but with no flame to burn them, they rise like smoke. This is what we see coming from the wick, and this is why the smoke smells more with no flame. It's the same process for burning any type of fuel. By this logic, and on a bigger scale, if we want a fuel source such as coal to burn more effectively, then we can carefully blow air onto it to increase the amount of oxygen. This in turn increases the efficiency of combustion, producing a cleaner flame and less smoke. Thanks to Duncan and Ricky for helping us shed some light on that question. Next week, we have this question from Leah. So why are some people good at imitating accents and doing impressions while others simply aren't? Obviously, you can get better with practice, but why are some people born with the skill of imitation and some aren't? I am very much in that latter category, so I will not be doing any impressions to end the show. But if you have an idea, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientist or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. I can't believe you've chickened out. <laughs> There we go. Oh, there you go. That's an impression for you. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia who put the programme together. Do join us next week for an animal special Q&A. So I suppose you could say it's a zoo and a show. We're going to be answering the questions you send in about the animal world. So send them in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com or via Twitter or via Facebook and we'll pick them up and take a look. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.